Nearly six months ago, we began a study of the book of Romans. Today, we come to our 20th sermon in that sacred book. So one more time, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Romans chapter 16. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 16, I'll read verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When Paul the Apostle comes to the climactic conclusion of this great New Testament letter, he simply begins our passage by writing, Now to him who is able. Out of all the words that could be employed to describe our God, one of the better options is the word able, because our God is able. To the God who created the world out of nothing, he is able. The God who spoke and said, let there be light, and light came running at 186,000 miles per second, is able. The God who flung the stars into space taught the sun how to shine, told the ocean it only comes so far, is able. The God who preserved Noah and his family in the worldwide flood is able. The God who turned down the thermostat for the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace is able. The God who shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den is able. The God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish is able. The God who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth some 2,000 years ago in a Bethlehem barn is able. The God who fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish is able. The God who opened up blind eyes and unstopped deaf ears is able. The God who went to the cross for your sins and mine was buried in a borrowed grave and on the third day was raised from the dead is able. The God who ascended into the heavens with a promise he'll come back in like manner is able. The God who took my iniquity and gave me his innocence is able. The God who took my sin and gave me his salvation is able. The God who takes all my mistakes and gives me all of his mercy is able. What the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome, I say to the church at Pelham today, our God is able. Now to him who is able to establish you. The word establish means to strengthen, to nurture. You is second person plural. It's y'all. Specifically, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, but generally he's speaking to the church of all the redeemed. What Paul says in the first century, I say in the 21st century. Now to him who is able to establish you. 
He's able to strengthen you. He's able to nurture you. And the you is the people of God. The you represents those who have been bought with the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, through Christ, is able to strengthen you regardless of circumstance. There's somebody in the house today who just needs to be reminded of that truth. Regardless of what the doctor says, independent of uh, what the boss has just told you, uh, regardless of the deterioration of a relationship, You need to hear this morning that ours is a God who is able to strengthen you regardless of the circumstance and regardless of the situation. Our God is able to establish you both now and forevermore. And what God began in you, he will complete. There is nothing that can thwart his will in the life of the redeemed because we belong to God. And God is able to establish us. If you stop and consider, what is the church that God has established in Christ? I think that the church at Rome is a microcosm of the body of Christ. In this letter, as Paul comes to the conclusion, he starts Romans chapter 16 by recognizing and identifying 26 individuals. Now keep in mind, he's not the founding pastor. Up to this point, he had never been to the church at Rome. Yet in his travels, he had interacted with some of these saints. This is not the entire membership role at Rome. But these do represent people that the apostle knows personally. And as you take a closer look at those 26 names, there are a couple of characteristics that seem to jump off the page. This church that God has established, it's multiracial. It's multicultural. It's multigendered. If you examine those 26 names, you'll discover that it's multiracial. There are Jews and Gentiles. In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, and in verse 11, Paul uses the terms to identify specific individuals as my relatives. Now, when he says my relatives, he does not mean that they are biological siblings, but the word relative is countrymen. They are fellow Jews. In verse 5, he identifies by name the first convert in Asia. Undoubtedly, that individual must be a Gentile. And so there in the church at Rome, you have Jews and Gentiles coming together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what binds them more than anything else. We live in a culture where it would seem that race is the highest demographic known to man. In American culture, it would seem that the pigmentation of your skin is the identifying marker of your humanity. Uh, That's true in the 21st century. It's just as prominent and prevalent in the first century. But what Paul is reminding the church is that the church of Jesus Christ is not just for a particular race of people, but the church of Jesus Christ makes up the family of God. And in the family of God, there are both Jew and Gentile. There are people from uh, literally dozens of different races right there in the church at Rome. And what's true in that church ought to be true in every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For what God has established, what he strengthens, what he nurtures, is a church that is multiracial. It's also multicultural. Now, when I use the word culture, I mean socioeconomic culture. In verse 10, he identifies a man by the name of Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. You cannot get any higher in the Roman echelon of society than the family of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great's grandson was a member there at the church at Rome. You go down to verses 14 and 15. He identifies people by the name of Julia or Urbanus or Hermes. And all of these are names of individuals that were quite common names for those in the working class, those who were uh, deemed as slaves of the first century. So there in the church at Rome, there were the wealthy and the working class. There were descendants of Herod the Great. There were also individuals that were known uh, as as, uh, day workers, as laborers, as servants, as slaves. And there in the house of God, what, what made the distinction was not how much money's in your bank account, but who is your savior. Who is your Lord? And the Lord Jesus bound together people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. The church at Rome was not only multiracial and multicultural, it was also multigendered. There were only two genders, for he made them male and female. And if you look down through the list of those 26 names, nine of them are women. And Paul has something spectacular to say to these female servants of the church. He speaks to and identifies Tryphena and Tryphosa. They had to be twins, don't you think? Tryphena, Tryphosa. And both of these ladies are identified as hard workers in the Lord. That phrase hard worker means strong exertion. In other words, these are some movers and shakers. These are some ladies that if something's going to get done in the church, they're the ones who are going to be pushing behind it. They're the ones who are going to be doing the work. They have strong exertion, hard workers in the church. The apostle identifies not only these ladies, but also men. And they came together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do find it interesting that the very first name he lists in Romans 16.1 is not one of the 26 identified as a member at the church at Rome, but the first person he identifies is a lady. Her name is Phoebe. And Phoebe is not a member at the church at Rome, for he says, I commend Phoebe to you, for she belongs to a church, and he identifies the church, and it's one that was located in the port of Corinth. Most believe that the apostle was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. So many believe that by his terminology, when he says, I commend Phoebe to you, and I want you to meet her needs and take care of her, for she's been a great benefit to me, most interpret that to mean that the apostle Paul gave this letter to Phoebe, and Phoebe was the one entrusted with taking it to the church at Rome. She had a valuable task, a valuable job, and she's described as a servant of the church. Now, if you dig a little deeper, that word servant is the word deacon. She is a diakonos, uh, dia meaning through, konos meaning dirt. So it's, it's the identity, it's the identity of, of a deacon, a servant of the church, somebody who goes through the dirt. Yes, they have dirty feet, but also they go through the dirt and they minister to others and they do the menial tasks 
And it's very reminiscent of what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed when he washed the disciples' feet. I've set you an example, he said, that you should do for others as I have done for you. And it's that same imagery that that's what a deacon is. A deacon is a dirty foot person. It's one who has dirty feet and ministers to those with dirty feet. And Phoebe qualifies. Now, I don't know exactly what her role was, but regardless of how you parse it, regardless of how you explain it, she was a servant, a valuable servant in the church, entrusted with the sacred script of Romans. And she successfully delivered it to the church in the capital city of the Roman Empire. What Paul's doing is he's identifying the great diversity in the church. For the church at Rome, it was multiracial, multicultural, multigendered. And you have to ask the question, so, so what brings unity in the midst of all that diversity? If the church is supposed to be a melting pot, If the church is supposed to be a collection of individuals from different places and different races, if it's supposed to be a collection of different people with different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different uh, sides of the track, so to speak, if it's supposed to be made up of all types of humanity, if there's such diversity, how do you maintain unity in the midst of diversity? That's a great question. And that, my friends, is how he ends this letter. The three verses I read for you give you uh, three ways that we maintain unity in the midst of diversity. Number one, by my gospel. Number two, by the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And number three, by the revelation of the mystery made known in the scriptures. This is what he says. In these last three verses, he says this is how you maintain unity in the midst of great diversity in the body of Christ. First and foremost, it's by my gospel. Friends, over the last 20 plus weeks, we've been doing our best to explain the gospel, to describe the gospel, to illustrate the gospel, to appropriately apply the gospel into everyday life. In fact, the the title of this sermon series has simply been gospel because the letter of Romans is all about the gospel. And here, as Paul comes to the end of it, he is, in just a a small phrase, summarizing the letter in its totality. All of this has been about my gospel. All of this has been about the one thing that brings unity in 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 the midst of great diversity in the church of Jesus Christ. It is my gospel. Let's just remember what Paul has already stated, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That if we confess with our lips Jesus Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, I just itemized and articulated about a handful of verses that are embedded in the, in the, in the letter to the Romans. What Paul has been consistently writing is this gospel. The one thing that unites us more than anything else is the gospel. It's a greater unifier than race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, political persuasion, 
likes, interests, and hobbies. This is the one thing that unites very diverse people. It is the gospel. And Paul does not just call it the gospel. He doesn't just call it a gospel. He doesn't call it your gospel. He doesn't even say it's our gospel. He says this is my gospel. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the redeemed is personal but never private. The gospel that has taken hold of my life, it is very personal to me. It is my gospel. Let me clarify what he's not saying. He is not saying this is my gospel and you can have your gospel. And that's his gospel. And over there, she can have her gospel. No, he is saying this is my gospel. It's personal to me. And everybody who has the biblical gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is tuned to the same gospel so that my gospel and your gospel, they're the same thing. Because we're united under the banner of Christ. And so this is my gospel. We look around and we see some diversity here in this congregation. We look around at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the globe and there is great diversity. What in the world unites all these millions upon millions and billions and billions of people? It's the gospel. Not just the gospel in an in a aloof kind of way, but it's my gospel. It is so personal to me. But long before I'm known as a man, I'm a gospel person. Long before I'm a white man, I'm a gospel person. Long before I'm a white man who's an American that lives in the South, I'm a gospel person. Because the gospel is the one thing, it's the first thing, it's the core thing that defines who we are as the people of God. So Paul says, this is my gospel. At the heart of my gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So what brings unity in the midst of diversity? It's not only my gospel, but at the heart of my gospel, Paul says, is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. We said before that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. You don't find his phone number by looking under the C's in the directory. No, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his name, it's his title. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the anointed one. The greatest theological statement you could ever make on your lips is to say Jesus Christ. Because by you saying Jesus Christ, you are saying the man named Jesus who lived in the third decade of the first century, this one who lived in Nazareth, he is Messiah. He is the long-awaited one. He is the Christ. And the greatest theological statement you can make is Jesus Christ. Paul says that what brings unity is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. Central to our preaching is that Jesus is Christ. The last thing you need is to come in and hear a preacher give half-baked ideas from a dim-witted preacher. The last thing you need are just seven ideas to raise happy, healthy children. The last thing you need is just, just five methods of building your marriage or four ways of getting out of debt. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus has much to say to your parenting. He has much to say to your marriage. He has a lot to say about your money and how to spend it. But 
But everything that we do is seen through the lens of Christ and him crucified. We have a Christocentric worldview. Our worldview encompasses how we understand who we are and why we're here and why we interact with each other and and what comes after death. I mean, all of that shapes our worldview. And our worldview as gospel people is Christocentric because it's built on the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. That's why Christians think differently. That's why Christians act differently than the world. We are different than the culture. We are different than society. Why? Because we're gospel people. And at the heart of the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. You show me a church that makes much of Jesus, I'll show you a church that proclaims Jesus is Christ. One of the great temptations in our culture and every culture is to make less of Jesus. One of the great temptations is to demote him. But friends, I have come to this conclusion. I cannot make too much of Jesus. I can't think about him too much. I can't worship him too much. I can't speak about him too much. I can't dwell upon him too much. I can't proclaim him too much. I cannot worship and serve him too much. I cannot make too much of Jesus and neither can you. Because we are gospel people and at the heart of the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. Oh, but Paul says that at the heart of that proclamation that Jesus is Christ is the revelation of the mystery that has now been revealed in the scripture. What is that? What is the mystery of ages past that has now been revealed? Paul says, in accordance with the prophetic writings, which in his day, that would be the scripture. It's what you and I would call the Old Testament. So Paul is saying that something was foretold in the Old Testament, and it was shrouded in mystery. It wasn't quite obvious and evident, but now it has been revealed. That which is fuzzy has now become clear. What is Paul talking about? He's saying that the heart of my gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ. At the heart of the proclamation that Jesus is Christ is the declaration that Jesus is the sole Savior of mankind. That he is the only one who can save, Jew or Gentile. That's the great mystery. The great mystery of the Old Testament is, when will Messiah come? And now Paul is saying Messiah has come. And he he has come, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. This is not something that all the Jewish people saw and and, and realized was coming down the pike. But, But some of the prophets, they knew it. They understood that when Messiah comes, he'll be Savior, not just of Jew, but also of Gentile. That's why Paul inserts that great phrase, so that. So that the nations might believe and obey. Listen, the only thing that unites us as a diverse people of God is my gospel. And at the heart of my gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Christ and fundamental and foundational to our proclamation that Jesus is Christ is the fact that he is the sole savior. He is the only one who can save anybody, that he is the only one that can escort us to eternity and guide us into glory. He is the only one who has come. Therefore, we must go and tell the nations. The nations represent all ethnicities, all nations There's no nation that's out of bounds. There's no nation that we don't go to. We go to the nations. Why? Because John tells us in Revelation that there is coming a day when there will be a representative of every tribe, every nation, every kindred, and every tongue. And they will proclaim along with us that salvation belongs to our God, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. 
We look around and we'll see representatives of every single nation because the gospel has gone forth. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of both Jew and Gentile of all the nations. So now Paul just simply declares to him be the glory both now and forevermore. Why? Because he made good on his promise. God promised he would send Messiah and he has God promised he would send the Christ, and he did. God has promised to redeem those by faith, and he does. And so regardless of your diversity, regardless of your race, regardless of your culture, regardless of your gender, the one thing that unites us as the body of Christ is my gospel, the proclamation of Jesus that he is Messiah, This is why Paul gets so excited that God is able to establish you. God is able to nurture you. God is able to strengthen you. Why? Because you're built on the foundation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what unites us. So I thought it fitting for us to conclude this 20-part sermon series by gathering around the virtual table of our Lord and having communion for us to experience the Lord's Supper. Because what does the Lord's Supper do? Well, it proclaims my gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. That that whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you come to him by faith, you can gather at the Lord's table. So today, if you are the redeemed, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, if you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're invited to come and commune with Christ. And my prayer is that the Lord will sit right beside you. And in these moments when we prepare for the taking of the bread and the cup, and in the taking of the bread and the cup, we will feast on Christ by faith. And allow the Lord to minister to you. Allow the Lord to speak to you as you come and commune with Christ. I'm going to pray We're going to sing. And as we sing, use that song as a moment of preparation for taking the bread and the cup. And if you are part of the redeemed, you're invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you uh, this moment when we stop and uh, prepare for the taking of the bread and taking of the cup. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will minister to us right now and remind us of the great unity we have as the body of Christ globally in the midst of tremendous diversity. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Minister to us in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.